That was so different. There's a lot more money, there's a lot more talent. You know, people understand like, you know, I think startups can be learned, right? Mm -hmm. It is a system. Like there is ways to go through each stage of growth and how you do it, it is a formula in many ways. And I think Japan has collectively got enough knowledge uh, within the startup community to, to do that now. Welcome to Wall and Case Listen, a podcast covering Japan market entry, market insights, big trends in tech, startup stories, and much more. I'm Brian Rios, host and marketing specialist here at Wall and Case. Please enjoy. So I'm here with Casey Wall, founder of Wall and Case, EQIQ, and Attuned. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. There's a few more. <laughs> it's a list. Yeah, yeah. We'll get, I got I closed we'll get down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about all of them. Um, yeah, and so I wanted to kind of start at the beginning. Um, you have a very global background. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how that affected your drive to become an entrepreneur. So I was born in upstate New York, in Rochester, uh, which is a smaller, less dead Detroit, uh, where I think dreams go to die. It's kind of, it's beautiful, it's absolutely gorgeous, but there wasn't a lot of, I don't know, it, it wasn't a, a town on the up. Let's say that it had its best days maybe in the 1860s. <laughs> so um, anyways, my parents got out of there when, they were, when I was one. We went to Houston for a little while. Uh, you know, I was in a hurricane in Houston pretty much after that. We went to Saudi Arabia where it doesn't rain. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the deserts of Saudi Arabia from when I was like one and a half until maybe 15. And then I went to a boarding school kind of south of Boston, college in Texas, and I came to Japan after that. So actually, I've now lived in Japan the longest <laughs> than Saudi Arabia the second in the U.S. where I'm American, kind of the third. So, so inside, it's pretty Japanese. So in terms of like the entrepreneurialism, like I don't know if it's kind of a DNA thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, probably every American has, right? You know, we, m most people, you know, have been immigrants mm -hmm. and somebody took a huge step mm -hmm. going into the unknown, lots of risk and just have to kind of figure out and go through all of, uh, all of kind of the overcoming the obstacles as it happened. So I think that's it. Like, you know, my father worked for an oil company. He didn't have a college education. Uh, you know, he started out in like the, the oil fields, working on the pipeline type of thing like that. And then he, you know, grew up to be kind of the SAP project manager, which became the biggest SAP project in the world. Um, That's amazing. So it was a very kind of stable life, right? And, uh, you know, living in the middle of a desert, like a 1950s idyllic kind of U.S. military town type mm -hmm. of thing like that. Um, but I was always getting in trouble, all the time. I think uh, maybe rather than the locations to per se, because I mean, if you look around, like the kids that I grew up with, like it was a small town, mm -hmm. it was only 900 people, right? And my graduating class in middle school was, what, 16 people, maybe, <laughs> you know? Like we went through a Gulf War, we had to carry our gas masks to school every day. You know, I made packs with like, friends of mine that, you know, okay, they would give me the chemical warfare shots and I would give them the chemical warfare shots. So, you know, there were a lot of kind of obstacles and challenges that came through, but it was all kind of fun as a kid. But I don't think many of them became entrepreneurs. So could you just say it was the international background? I think it's something just in the, the strange DNA complex that, that came out with me and kind of always testing rules. And, you know, now I have quite a few kids. 
Um, I don't know how many will be entrepreneurs, but I can see the last one is just, she's probably only got one path in life, and that's to be an entrepreneur, just always testing every rule, testing every boundary, just slowly doing it, tons of energy, just going all over the place. And I think I was a lot like that as a kid, so I would probably put it a little bit more DNA rather than that environment for internationalism. Nice, nice. Um, and so throughout all of that, uh, eventually, like you mentioned, it, it led to Japan and you've spent most of your time here. Um, what made Japan the right place for that sort of settling down or, or that cultivating of business? So I think with Japan, like it's a very attractive place for people in the world right now. I think when I came, it was, you know, it still is like I've heard people describe it as like kind of Mars on Earth. Like it's the most <laughs> different kind of culture that you can kind of get to. And it was like a big adventure. You know, I grew up in the Middle East. I kind of had that in my blood to a sense, you know, traveled a bunch. So like when I came, it was a, a big adventure. Um, I think a lot of people come to Japan that way, but then there's this two-year line, right? You know, and you go through that kind of cycles of acclimation and depression and everything. And I, I don't know what the percentage is. I just guess maybe 60, 70% of people go back at two years. Mm -hmm. That's it. I got Japan out of my system. Now I'm going to go back and get to kind of my real life. And for me, it was kind of like that. Uh, to certain extents, like I spent two years in Oita on the JET program, mm -hmm. you know, I was doing like Koksai Koryuin, giving like speeches plus, you know, English teaching. Um, beautiful, nice people, but I hated the job to all hell. <laughs> I kind of wanted to do something more um, in Japan, so I just fell into recruitment uh, back in the day. Like fast forwarding it to starting this company, it's kind of like why Japan, it's, it's the market you know, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the Japan geographical market and kind of the business climate and the relationship-driven kind of uh, business that it is, plus mm -hmm. recruitment as we initially founded the company. Mm -hmm. You know, when you become an entrepreneur, like if you take MBA classes, there's this like BCG graph, right? Like mm -hmm. the four quadrants type of thing. And if the market is growing and you know the market, then you get in the upper right-hand quadrant, you're most likely to have success. So mm -hmm. like, I guess that is the thoughtful, that's what most smart people try to do and position their startup there. I just, oh yeah, let's, let's do this. It was more feeling. Nice, nice. Um, kind of continuing on that thought about your MBA, um, you actually received it in Spain, in Europe, and I feel like that's almost like a through line of that global, up, maybe not upbringing, but global mindset. Um, was there reasoning behind that or, or what was sort of your, yeah, thoughts of going to Spain specifically? Of course, uh, there was quite a lot of reasoning, quite a lot of logic mm -hmm. behind it. Um, so when we founded the company, I was what, like 30, 31, and I looked young. Like I probably looked in my like late teens or early 20s. I didn't have these lines. I didn't have kind of all the, you know, stresses that you have as an entrepreneur. And um, we were doing executive searches with country managers, Asia Pacific, founders, kind of global searches. Like one of our first ones was, you know, we went to Tesla headquarters. You know, we we're meeting with the CTO, like JT Sable, you know, and getting these things. And I look young and like a little kid, really, <laughs> you know, and uh, I didn't necessarily have that credibility. And uh, the, one of the co-founders, he had an MBA, you know, from a top school. And just, you know, by saying, I have an MBA from here, which he very proudly said in every single conversation in the introduction, mm -hmm. there just was like kind of a light or a mm -hmm. checkbox that went off and, you know, whoever was in the K Kikaku Shitsu type of thing, they went to University of Tokyo, they went to this, okay, I'm speaking with an equal here. Mm -hmm. And even though 
I felt intelligence-wise, you know, and I knew what I was doing that I could be have a seat at the table, that box wasn't getting checked off. And then I was just amazed at the network. Like it just opened so many doors, the alumni network. So I'm like, okay, you know, we like pretty early on, you know, the first year we pretty much broke even, the second year we had profits. And like it was a small team, like, okay, if I'm ever gonna do this, I need to do it now. So we wanted to be a very global company that was always part of the vision. And you know, we said, okay, throughout Asia, we have connections, you know, Silicon Valley, we have connections, but we have nothing in Europe and South America type mm. of thing. So this is where I start going towards IE. Um, as I dug deeper, you know, it was a, basically a one-year program uh, versus US universities, which are, tend to be two-year programs. Uh, it was much, much cheaper. Uh, I think a third of the price of like a top US school it was number one, like IE and uh, Madrid was number one on many rankings and kind of EFT. So all of these things were coming together. Uh, I think like the cherry on the cake was you didn't have to do the GMAT. Like this is yeah, I don't want an MBA that much that mm -hmm. I want to spend a lot of time studying for the GMAT. Mm -hmm. uh, so did that, but it, it turned out to be an absolutely fantastic school. Love the people, love the education. Um, I signed up for a 12-month program, and actually I was doing it executive MBA bi-weekly from Tokyo. Yeah. So I would leave Tokyo on a Thursday morning. I get to Madrid like past midnight on Thursday. I had school all day on Friday from 8 a.m. to maybe 6 p.m., then Saturday 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. type of thing. Then I get on an airplane 6 a.m. You know, on Sunday, get back on Monday into Japan, and then I do the same thing 10 days later. So I kind of signed up for this. I made the budget and everything like that. Then, okay, the one year I can handle this. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I got there, they gave me the schedule. And, oh, it's a 16-month program now. <laughs> Never told me that. I was like, all right, welcome to IE type of thing like that. So that was kind of the motivation. Absolutely fantastic. Once I did have that MBA, it would just you, you could see like, oh, if somebody has it, it's just a box. And the eyes change and the credibility changes type of thing like that. So in some ways, it's unfortunate, but it's also very helpful. Um, and I could pay less than many people paid and take less time. That's great. That's great. Um, nice. And uh, I want to talk about startup culture in Japan. And I think a good place to start um, is with Red Brick, Red Brick Ventures, um, which is one of the companies I think that we had alluded to a little bit at the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and honestly, it's something that like I didn't know about before joining Wall and Case, but I found super interesting after joining and just that spirit of innovation. And so I wanted to kind of ask you about um, like what was that inspiration behind Red Brick and yeah, maybe just the story of Red Brick Ventures. Mm. So when we founded the company in 2010, there, there wasn't like the startup ecosystem now. Like, I mean, being an entrepreneur was pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, back then, there wasn't capital really. There wasn't a support network. There wasn't co-working spaces kind of everywhere. So again, pretty quickly, like within a couple of year or two, we were growing quite well. You know, we had extra cash. We kind of had extra capacity. We knew the market and stuff like this. So there was this, you know, pay it forward mentality. Okay, let's give back. You know, let's help build this startup ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, like I think we were going through like co-working ideas and stuff like that mm -hmm. for for a while. And you know, co-working wasn't isn't a really high value mm -hmm. thing. Is was I kind of checked across that one out. But one of our customers at Wall & Case, the uh, recruiting, was a, a company called Rocket Internet. Mm -hmm. And um, they became quite famous for getting 
like copy mm -hmm. startups and blowing those up, getting them very, very big, scaling very, very quickly. And they had a certain model. They'd hire a certain type of young person from a, quite a lead, maybe institutional, like consulting or, or finance background, put them as CEO and then work them extremely hard. And there was kind of a setup. Um, we got to know them quite well to the point where I was on the phone arguing with the founders because they were refusing to pay bills that they owed type of thing <laughs> yes. like that. Um, and they had a, you know, a reputation for being having very sharp elbows. Mm. And uh, yeah, we experienced those as well. And kind of knowing the different parts of Japan was like Japan is relationship driven and all their startups failed and they actually exited Japan relatively early. And I could say, okay, you had all these problems. Mm. On the other side, we were meeting a lot of elite Japanese, you know, at McKinsey, University of Tokyo, whatever it might be, mm. Goldman Sachs. And they were all saying in 2010, 2011, 2012, hey, you know, it's amazing you're an entrepreneur. You became an entrepreneur in this you know, downtown market. Wow, this is crazy. I'd love to be an entrepreneur. That's so cool. So we were hearing these people, you know, the candidate side, young, energetic people. And there was this kind of bubbling Japanese pride where we need to make the next Sony. You know, it's so disappointing Japan doesn't have startups. We don't have these great companies. So I was kind of feeling that, you know, these people here, we learn the model kind of from Rocket Internet and say, okay, let's do Rocket Internet with a heart, where we kind of actually care. And that's where we started. So we, <clears throat> and back at the time, there was still um, like a, a time lag. So there was idea arbitrage. So because we were plugged into San Francisco and Silicon Valley, we could see what startups were hot and which were very cool. And at the time, it was about six to nine months before somebody would try to do it here. So we could kind of go through. We had like whole decks and Excel sheets. And it's like, okay, let's do these. Um, and then we recruited the founder. We put in a little bit of money type of thing like that. Um, I think we ended up doing, what, five companies slash projects. Mm -hmm. And they all failed. <laughs> yeah. That's the market. I feel like that's and so actually kind of continuing on that as well. Like, what do you feel you would do maybe different today, or how do you see the market being different now versus um, what it was when Redbrick was established? I think that was my second MBA, really. You know, it was doing it concurrently with the MBA, but you know, we're going from a professional services recruitment business where it's kind of people oriented, mm -hmm. building management systems, um, to trying to build a tech product and like a different type of entrepreneurialism where it's kind of a different type of scale and trying to find product market fit, right? Mm -hmm. I already knew product market fit for recruiting and how to get customers and all that type of thing. So I kind of learned how to do a tech startup and we lost a lot of money. It was very painful, tons of horrible conversations. Um, even to the point, one of the founders who was so dedicated, worked so hard, was thinking about committing suicide. And like only later did I know that he was daydreaming about suicide at that time. And it was coming back from you know, the, the Japan where you couldn't admit failure, right? Mm -hmm. He couldn't admit failure to his parents, you know, to his fiance type of thing. And that was the only way out. Like the startup was clearly going down type of thing like this. So got to learn a lot of things kind of very painfully. So if I did it all again, I wouldn't do it. If they, I mean, I would have this knowledge, right? That's the premise of the question. I have this knowledge, so hell no, I wouldn't do that. Um, the big mistake was, one of the biggest uh, of the many, many mistakes is we were doing unaligned businesses. So we did like a, a you know, a, a moms and kids mm -hmm. 
e-commerce baby platform type of thing like that. We did a closed social network. It was really cool to have your own social network for a while. Um, had one. Uh, and then a, kind of a few others. But none of them were related to you know, the core premise for starting Wall & Case. Mm -hmm. They weren't re related to recruitment or talent management. So you know, the value that we could add as Red Brick Ventures beyond you know, recruiting, helping with the team, putting the initial money in, is I would help them as kind of the entrepreneur in many ways. Mm. Like how to get over, how oh, here's a problem. Well, here's the spirit to get over and you know, let's attack this type of thing. Um, and some of the people that we brought in weren't that deep of entrepreneurs, you know, it's like, oh, it's getting tough. Okay, time to hang up the boots, you know, kind of move on type of thing like that. So I think not having aligned businesses and just doing it yourself mm. uh, is the biggest mistake beyond just doing it. That's fair. Um, and kind of on that, Thought as well. Um, you have a book called The Quiet Comeback. Two books. Two books. Go ahead. I want to talk about The Quiet Comeback. <laughs> that's the only one in English. <laughs> that's the only one I know. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it features similar stories actually from a lot of other entrepreneurs. Um, and recently it actually reached number one on the Amazon bestseller list again after five years. Not number one, but it got pretty close. Oh. Again, after five years. Yeah. yeah after it was number one in like a big category. Yeah, Not yeah, number one on okay, all yeah, of Amazon. Yes. Yeah. So when it was released, it became yeah. number one on all of Amazon. That's amazing. And so five years after publishing, though, what do you feel like led to that renewed interest? Um, I... I think there's kind of two parts. I mean, one is what, like, why did it shoot up? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's influencers and the people that I interviewed at that time, many of them have exited or crashed in big ways. And there's been a couple of scandals. There's kind of been big things. And, you know, it seems those events can drive kind of peaks of sales too. Uh, I think certain influencers that read it, you know, kind of do that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But the startup ecosystem now is quite mature in many ways. Mm -hmm. Like there's still not a tremendous amount of literature and I would say kind of like real literature beyond kind of like a formulaic system where it's actually talking about the human side of building a startup and, and kind of what that means. And that book I think is kind of unusual and you know there's, Japanese tend to like a certain category where you talk about Japan, but from Western eyes or mm. from foreign eyes type of thing like that. They like reading about themselves, but with a different angle. And I think kind of being a foreigner, I could really, and also being an entrepreneur, I could flesh out and also probably being a recruiter and interviewing many peoples and kind of going with that, is flesh out and get them to talk about like real pain stories. Like, and I don't think there's many books like that. You know, there's the typical kind of man in the hole, like, story structure where somebody writes their own biography, right? You know, I was good, then it was really tough, and then I became awesome at the end. Like these books were like, no, it was a slog, and it was tough, and it was horrible, you know? Um, and I think that still remains relatively unique. So, you know, when people are looking for kind of that chicken soup for the soul when they're stuck in entrepreneurship, there's not too many things to reach for in Japan. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to the market being much different now, much more fertile now. Um, like what, what would you say are maybe the biggest contrasting factors between now and then when, um, like you, when you were starting your companies? Oh, everything. <laughs> I mean, everything, everything. Like there's no comparison. Um, you know, how many successful entrepreneurs are there now, like within tech, meaning that they've had an exit or that they've listed? Several hundred, 
maybe at the time there were these a couple, you know, like cyber agent and a couple like, uh, you know, Mikitani-san. There were very, very few iconic cases, but now there's hundreds. You know, just the amount of collective knowledge, like how many meetups, like today, how many discussions about startups, you know, are the clubhouses going nuts right now between the VC? Like so many people are talking about that, plus meetups, plus events. There's probably thousands going on today. Probably back then there were might one, two, <laughs> right? And, you know, you were going to like, Taitoku way out there and like it was kind of weird and people in suits reading very formally about entrepreneurship So it was so different. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more talent You know people understand like, you know, I think startups can be learned, right? It is a system like there is ways to go through each stage of growth and how you do it It is a formula in many ways and I think Japan has collectively got enough knowledge uh, within the startup community to, to do that now. So, you know, I think really from my perspective, what is left is still, I think you need the gradations of talent mm. to join the startup at startups at different phases. You know, you have like your, your zero to one phase where people kind of do many jobs, are kind of scrappy, can deal with kind of no systems. You know, you're going on that dirt road. Then the next stage is where you have the gravel and you need a different type of personality and a different type of motivation to do that. And then once you're really scaling, it's like, okay, these are systems, these are processes, and let's just go as fast as we can down the highway. And in Japan, it's still expected for, I think, the founders and the team to go from the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. You know, and if we can have like talent going in and out, and this is my specialty. Hey, you know, you're at 1 million ARR and you want to go to 5 million ARR, I'm your man or I'm your woman and that's the time to do it and then I'm gone. And no, both sides know exactly what they're good at. Um, I think there's still not enough of that. And I think that once that happens, it'll get even more likely to have bigger success and bigger scaling. That's awesome. Um, and I think that your influence on that, on that culture um, is a little bit more prevalent I think that we've even touched on now, including um, the film Startup Girls, which is the first startup. poster right over yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's in the shots. <laughs> Who set up these camera angles? Right, you didn't get the signed poster. <laughs> we'll get some B-roll. Letter to the producers, please. Um, yeah, and so I wanted to talk about kind of you, what was the aim maybe behind making that film? Was it really to to push the culture, or what inspired it? Um, yeah, startup girls. Yeah, it was to get to reach a broader kind of um, what's the English word like more ipang mm. audience, like kind of a more regular audience mm. type of thing. So with the book, um, I did a lot of speaking events. You know, after like kind of like book tour and you know whatever, went to Apple Store, 100 people, and always the most interesting part for me is like after talking about it, is the people would come up and there'd be a line of like 10 or 20 people and you'd be there for 30, 45 minutes and, you know, you get an interesting story. Hey, I read this book and. I didn't quit my company, I kept on because somebody else, like I read a very similar story or, you know, I was thinking about it and then this book gave me the courage, you know, I know actually really what it is that I'm gonna get into. And it was that changing lives that was really meaningful uh, for me. And there were certainly, you know, what, at least a handful that I know of directly, but I wanted to do that on a much bigger scale. And then really to help kind of normalize startup culture, like just the average person needs to understand the words startup. Mm 
and kind of what it means and that this is a career choice and this is a life choice and you know put that into kind of regular films and and that was the idea to it so the first one the first book you know became amazon number one did really well you know when i wrote it it was just something creative that i had to get out like it was a baby that needed to be born and i really thought i'd only sell like 25 copies and most of my mom <laughs> but it, it did very very well right and Startup Girls, the movie, became a very similar thing. And like, because the first one did so well, the publisher was giving me a lot of pressure. Hey, you know, you need to write the second one. We're onto something. Here's something we can monetize this a bit further. You know, the market has changed. There's new stories. There's new technologies. And uh, I hated writing the first one. It was, it was, it was horrible. Like, I hated it. It was so painful. Um, so I kept saying no. And then just fortuitously, I met somebody who knew startups, somebody who produced movies, somebody who I got along very well, and like I pitched him on the spot, and he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then like that weekend, I started writing, he's like, why don't you make the first synopsis? So I wrote the first synopsis, sent it to him, he read it over the weekend, sent it back, and we started making the script, and it was just this you know, ping pong back and forth, and it became kind of exciting. Uh, and then it got released in 2019 all across Japan, you know, with probably one of the most famous stars mm -hmm. out there now. Nice. Yeah, I loved it, that's one of my like, I remember hearing about that when I first joined the company. And uh, it's one of those things that makes it feel so, like, new and so, uh, like, progressive in both ways almost. Like, I think that you've touched on this a little bit before, too. With It, it is almost an empowerment story as well, mm. um, which I think is something that, Japan could use a lot of. <laughs> well, that was kind of it. Like, you know, we're getting there. We're thinking, of, like, I wrote the original script with, like, female characters. And I'm like, if I'm going to do this, why don't we just make it, you know, yeah. women characters? This is, you know, let's two birds and one stone. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, but, like, those first meetings as we got into dealing with the talent agency and the movie, like, they wanted to say venture or they, you know, startup, huh? What is this? And explaining that, like, it was so difficult. So it was kind of one of those things, like, I think the, the movie is having a long tail and it does change people's lives and we've heard of people starting companies from watching it, but um, it's probably the first one that kind of pushed the envelope a little and I think there'll be more that might be more impactful uh, afterwards. But. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so I wanted to talk more also about some of the companies that you're currently running. Um, Only one. Yeah, <laughs> So Only one. Currently a part of, I guess, or currently a, a So we have EQ, IQ, and then we have two business lines. Yeah, well, in case the recruitment business line and a tune, yeah. you know, the SaaS, uh, intrinsic motivation business line. Nice, nice. And so, yeah, I wanted to focus first on wall and case. Um, I do, not much. Yeah, yeah, I guess. So. But with the with, the <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> let's 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 dive a little bit deeper into that. So um, about me not doing very much. <laughs> about the business itself, what kind of drove you um, to make a recruitment business, and then also um, what do you feel like the result has been? So it's been about eleven years now, um, and so for you. I know that the original mission was to kind of fix recruitment. Um, and even within that, it, it sort of implies that it was broken or is still broken. Um, what are some of the parts that you feel were the most broken or, or really drove you to start Wall and Case? So when we founded it back in 2010, it was very little innovation in recruitment, right? You know, I think the innovation was sending resumes from fax to email. Like that was the big deal. Um, at the previous company I was at, like I was kind of part of the board in Japan and I would go to board meetings and 
here's this idea, and here's another idea, and here's another one. And I think two years of that just got shot down. It's like, shut up, you aggressive American. We're making a lot of money. All those sound like they're going to lose you know, a lot of ideas. So um, it just became a point where you know, I had to, I kind of structured it in like my own story to myself as like a fight for my soul. Like, I either can make a lot of money at the company I was at and you know, not use my brain, not try things, and kind of my soul dies at 30 years old, or I can kind of go out there and see how good it is, do these you know, ideas and belief have a lot of resonance. But at the heart of it is I love recruitment. You know, I absolutely love it. I think it's extremely difficult. And you know, through all of the years, I heard so many, I want to swear, um, say, hey, it's not rocket sizing. But it is. It is. Like, how many you know, neurons do we have in our brain? How do you go about making decisions? And like, when you're making some of these big life decisions where you don't have enough information you know, about the market, about the company that you're joining, about anything type of thing, and then you have your social people, your kind of like relationships kind of impacting this, how do people go about making decisions about these big life events? It's all messed up. And it's extremely complex with all these biases. And so it's just like rocket science. And I think that aspect of it, where you are having an impact on businesses and you know, watching businesses change and the appreciation and of course changing lives was always something that was very important. But there was so much waste. There was so much time wasted. There was so much emotional waste, so much psychological waste, financial waste. Like the system is clearly broken, but there really is no other kind of system. And you know, I don't like one of the things that I liked about it, it's a problem for a lifetime. Like, you know, you ask kind of what have we solved? Well, not much, to be honest. You know, I think we've done quite well. We've got a great NPS score. Like, like our clients and candidates rave about it. And this is something that the team's done very well. And we've been copied by a lot of our competitors. We've been trolled by a lot of our competitors a lot, you know, and they say imitation is the best form of flattery. Like, you know, we've had people in the company that get pissed off. Hey, they're doing what we were doing, you know, type of thing like that. But that's what you can do, but within the business model of recruitment, there's not that much you can change. You know, you can do kind of 1% kind of changes, and over time, those will have a big impact. But you have to come up with different business models, and I think that's where the combination of kind of red big fringers, understanding different business models, how can you have a delivery system with recruitment? It's me or the consultant going to whatever my spectrum is. Is it 10 clients, 5 clients, 20? Or can we build like a platform or a system where we can do it at a much bigger impact? Mm -hmm. So it was trying to get that far, and I think with a tune now mm -hmm. that we are at the stage where we can make part of the impact. Are we going to solve the problem completely? No, because again, it's very, very complex, but you know, still young, still have some good minds, right? So <laughs> I think we have a lot more to go, and it's that having a problem for a lifetime mm -hmm. is exciting. Nice, nice. I totally agree. Um, and so kind of touching on Attuned as well, um, I feel like in so much of work, um, the focus has really been on external motivation. Um, and as far as I know, Attuned seems to be like the first actual sauce product that is really focused on, on that internal int intrinsic motivation. Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk to you about how do you feel Attuned updates work? Like, how do you feel like it updates that viewpoint of really focusing on the external motivation with like bonuses or something like that in work versus the intrinsic motivation that Attune really hones in on? I think at the moment we're just really at the tip of the iceberg of kind of changing work, but I really believe that we'll change it globally. Mm -hmm. 
And it's kind of like the elevator, when the elevator was invented. You know, when you elevator invented, okay, here's this thing that goes up and down, but the buildings are only three stories high. What can you do with an elevator? You know, in three stories high, you have stairs perfectly functional. But because the elevator there, now you can start to make skyscrapers, right? And I think Attuned is going to play that role. It's like, okay, we have a certain level of kind of organization and relationship uh, kind of formation and communication within organizations, but people don't know how to communicate and understand each other on a deeper level, right? We can see all the surface information we pick up with our eyes and our ears, but what is driving that person? What is that person's value? If you ask me without a tune, could I say what your values are even though we've been speaking? No, I couldn't, right? I could feel it. I have thousands of hours of recruitment experience, 10,000 hours of kind of interviews, but I still couldn't get it right. And I think that's kind of the driver. So everybody within organizations can understand each other better, right? And of course, this is gonna have higher diversity, but it, you know, I think in terms of like the levels of human relationships is where you can really understand somebody for who they are, mm-hmm. you know, and allow them to express themselves in a way that they want, of course, align with the, the company. And I, ultimately, Attune's gonna help doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not there, still plenty of room to grow, and, but uh, I think it will be kind of the OS for organizational structure mm-hmm. and communication and relationship building going in the future. Nice, that's great. Um, and kind of looking at the future, um, in, in through the lens of maybe like the quiet comeback, what if you could write a chapter on Wall and Case, EQIQ, Attuned, EQIQ, I guess being the the company, um, what would you what would you say? I don't want to write my own book. <laughs> like that's why you know, like the the story isn't so interesting. Like I think we, you know, maybe this sounds a bit too ego driven. It's like we want to get big enough and have enough impact that there's going to be people writing about us, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be multiple stories of EQIQ and Attune and how we change kind of the world of work and talent management and you know all of these stories and and kind of that along the way. Um, yeah, like honestly, it feels we're just almost 11 years in, but. It's just starting. Mm-hmm. It took a long time to get here, and there's, you know, a ton of scars inside. Like psychologically, it's all scarred up, right? But I think now we have a fantastic team. Like, there's times I haven't enjoyed coming to work, and I didn't like, you know, some of the people that I worked with, and the founder of the company. Why, <laughs> you know, type of thing. That's not healthy. But I love it. Like we have great people. We have great management team. I think it's aligned, and, you know. We've, one of our kind of weaknesses or, or my weaknesses is trying too many things, you know, so even though our base isn't so strong, we have kind of had multiple business lines almost throughout the whole history of the company. So it stretches resources very thin. Um, and now we don't. Now, okay, Wall and Case is very strong, stable, great brand, market presence, very good team, great management team, and then the management bench is fantastic. And Attuned has found product market fit and it's kind of simple from here. And it's like, okay, let's build, let's do it properly. Like, let's not let Casey start something new and mess things up and, you know. So I think it's really just starting to recognize what our potential is. Yeah, and so um, the, the kind of thesis of, of EQIQ is humanity plus data. Um, and I just wanted to hear you go over what led to that creation and what that means to you and what you, hope it will mean to everyone. Well, I think just as humans and as people, we have a hard time like going through the world. Life is difficult. You know, communicating with 
other people, whether you know, they're your intimates and your spouses and your partners or people at work, it's tough. And you have different people and different value sets and different lived experiences and different thoughts. And how do you handle that? That's very, very difficult. So I think there's two components to it. And you know, one comes from the recruiting side of the business, wall and case, and you know, that's the humanity. Like, I don't think a platform or data is going to fully disrupt like talent management and hiring and you know how we deal with the work relationship. It's still about humans, about communicating and feeling connected and feeling understood. And there's a lot of different energy and chemicals that come with it that can only be done on a human side, right? But we're flawed animals. <laughs> like our brains are wired in a certain way, right? And you know, we might be kind of created to interact and behave in certain structures which aren't appropriate, or we make decisions very poorly. So how can we kind of mean more data? So it's almost augmenting you know, the base humanity, which we can all, all raise this, and bring in new data systems so we can communicate better, so we can be happier at work, so we can kind of really be more productive and happy and live kind of fuller lives. So, you know, so much of your time is non-private, where you are going out into the public sphere and you're part of it, and how many people really enjoy it? Not that many, probably, right? And so can we help people make better decisions for that, be onboarded, communicate kind of daily? That's where we bring the data side, while always keeping the humanity in mind, right? We don't want to become one of these tech companies that data is everything and we forget what it is to be human. That's great, that's great. Casey, thank you so much for your time. Um, it was great talking to you. Always a pleasure. Uh, let's definitely do it again soon. Thank you for listening. We are always looking for feedback or questions. Please feel free to send them to b.rios at wallincase.com. Aren't you going to like cut out some of the boring points? Or? Probably. Hopefully there'll be no boring points. <laughs> There's going to be some boring points. <laughs>